morning again. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 10, and read through for verse 13. Then, Lord willing, next week we will finish up the book of Philippians. And we haven't talked about it too much, but uh, just a week after that, it will be Lent, um, which is maybe something you observe or maybe you don't observe it too much. Um, I'm not one who's a usual practice server of it, but I think that I hit a point in kind of planning for this year that I realized that we had emphasized Christmas so much and spent a lot of time talking about building up to it that we ought to treat Easter with the same kind of affection and anticipation. So um, we're excited to move into a series that will take us through some passages to prepare us for Lent. We'll also have a devotional available from the Village Church as we did with Advent um, just this past Christmas season. Um, so begin, begin to look for that uh, in the next couple weeks over on the table. And hopefully I have stalled long enough for you to find Philippians in your Bibles. Um, also, it is printed in the bulletin. We have Bibles available on the back table if you um, would like to have one as well to follow along in greater context. So I'll go ahead and read verses 10 through 13, and then we'll pray. We'll talk a little bit about the word of the Lord today. Paul writes in verse 10 of Philippians chapter 4, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, this morning as we open up your word, we come to it from our position in life that you have placed us in this very moment. And there are things in our lives, circumstances, situations, relationships, trials, tribulations, dangers, worries, anxieties, there are things that we give prominence and attention to that right now by your spirit working through us, I pray that you would help us to lay those things down. That in this moment you would give us a taste of true contentment in Christ that would look to your word as the all-satisfying truth of the age that we need to hear from you. That we need to be empowered by your spirit by the truth of your words to bring eternal life to bear on our temporary day today. We thank you that you care enough to do this. We thank you that like a good father, as we read in Sunday school, what father among us would give a son or daughter a stone when they ask for bread or give a serpent when they ask for a fish? So, Lord, now we ask you, as Jesus taught us in that passage, to ask for the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts, to teach us contentment, creating us a heart willing and able to learn from you in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you have an outline in your bulletin. 
if you'd like to follow along with where we're going, we're going to just look at these um, handful of verses and separate them according to verse 10, then we'll look at 11 and 12 together, and then we'll wrap up with verse 13. But first we'll look at verse 10, and we'll see Paul rejoicing in the growth of the church rather than growing in what he could actually, or I'm sorry, rather than rejoicing in what he could gain from the church. So Paul has spent a lot of time in this letter expressing joy in Christ, joy in the church. It's been a repeated overflow of his heart, and it's been an imperative for us. Multiple times we see Paul saying, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. Now, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. And now here again, verse 10, he's saying, I rejoice. So if you can't tell, this is a word that we want to emphasize as we look at the book of Philippians. And his call for us to imitate him that we saw a handful of weeks ago. We can't ignore his joy, nor the unique reasons for it. His joy is founded in Christ, and from that starting point, it grows as he sees the work of Christ in his church. Christ-like character in the church at Philippi was shown in their sending of what seemed to be a large gift of money to help Paul in his time of need, because Paul, in fact, was where right now? Prison. This gift will be looked at more next week, Lord willing, as we return to that matter of the Philippians giving and looking at verses 14 through 18. Paul's going to um, expound on it a little bit more. But for now, the reason we see this as Paul rejoicing in Christian growth is because of his word choice in verse 10. He says, Not, sorry, now at length you have revived your concern for me. We shouldn't think that Paul is being rude in his word choice when he says now at length or saying, at last, or finally, you care about me again. That's not what he's getting to. Verse 11 shows us that he acknowledges that there was not a lack of concern, but actually a lack of opportunity for them to address Paul in his need. Paul doesn't mention what this lack may have been caused by. It may have been a financial lack, that they couldn't um, acquire the funds that they wanted to send to help Paul. It may have also been a matter of needing a trustworthy message bearer, and Epaphroditus may not have been immediately available for that, or something else entirely. But the gift was not sent for lack of care for Paul, but simply for lacking the opportunity. Remember back to chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul mentions their partnership in the gospel. Paul was not worried about their hearts in this matter, but recognized that they were hindered in a practical way from serving him. Paul used the word anathalo, which is translated by the ESV as revive, and it carries the idea of a blossoming flower. So their care for him was a bud that bloomed when they found opportunity to send Epaphroditus to him and show their love and concern for him. In them, Christ had blossomed a heart and action of love for his people, namely Paul in this case, and exemplified what 1 John 3.18 says, little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. This passage is not a downplay on words or talking because we are called to encourage one another and speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But if our love stops at our words, we're more like what James says when somebody who comes to our door in need um, asking for help, we open our door and say, oh, God bless you, go in peace, and we do not open up our hearts to them. So what the Philippians have done here is fulfilled this um, very important foundational practice of God's church 
by serving him, by expressing them, by expressing the love that they have for Paul in a practical way. And in this, Paul greatly rejoices. He rejoiced greatly in the Lord. That is, his joy was immense and overflowing at what? At the gift? No, but rather at their care for him. The gospel had taken root in their hearts and produced a beautiful fruit of love for Paul that served as proof of what the Lord began in them and was sure to finish in the end of his work in them, as he wrote in chapter 1, verse 6. It's a wonderful thing when the Lord causes joy in our hearts to well up over the progress of another person in the faith. It's not something we see all the time. It's not something perhaps that we even experience so much. Partially due to the fact that we don't always make discipleship the priority that it ought to be in our lives. It can be hard to to reflect or to imitate Paul in this verse 10 as we think about rejoicing in other people's progress if we're not actually walking with other people in their progress. If we can't look at another believer and say, I know where you were and I see where you are and I rejoice in what God has done there for you. Paul says in verse 11 that he was not in need of such a gift. And he shows that the true benefit he received in opening the pouch full of money or whatever the other supply might have been, his true joy was in fact that it was proof. The message of the gospel he shared with them found its way into their practice and into their priorities. So observing another passage from the New Testament, the Philippians show us what it means to remember those in Hebrews 13.3, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. So the author of Hebrews gives us the reason for why we ought to remember. And this remembering, of course, is not just simply saying, oh yeah, Paul's in prison, poor guy. But this remembering is a remembering that takes action and that puts into practice a true concern that you have for another. So remember those who are in prison. In what way? As though you, in fact, were in prison with them changes your perspective. Rather than to say that Paul is far off in prison, possibly in Rome, maybe somewhere else. Boy, that must stink, but I don't really know. If we can imagine, in one sense, the truth that around the world right now, there are Christians who either in an official capacity or a non-official capacity are being persecuted and imprisoned and harmed for their faith. We're called not just to just remember them and say, oh, that's really awful that's going on, but to remember them in our action as though we were in prison with them. Why? Because we are part of the body. Opening their treasures to provide with the same care as if they were right beside him, the Philippians proved to be partners in the gospel and sharers of that fellowship of sacrificial conformity to a shared goal. It became an expression of the unity of the body of Christ on earth. The care that Paul had for them that was so strong he would be willing to forego the fast track to heaven if possible in order to serve them. If you look back to chapter 1 verse 25 he says this. He says, which one would I choose? If I could go to heaven right now and be with Christ that'd be far better but it's better for me, for you rather, it's better for you that I stay and remain because there's ministry to be done. And this was the extent of the care that Paul had for them. And he's seeing in this gift a reflection of that care that he showed to them. We should learn from this Philippian example. When the opportunity came to give, their bud bloomed into glorious display of a new life in Christ. When the opportunity to minister and the opportunity to serve, the opportunity to 
lay your life down, to lay your life aside, to decrease yourself so that Christ might increase and help another person comes, it's a great moment for us to examine the truth of what Christ is doing in our hearts. If the opportunity comes and I close my heart off to them, John would say, how is the love of God even in you? But rather, Paul says here, I rejoice greatly. You revived your concern for me. You had no opportunity, but now you have, and you took the opportunity. I rejoice greater in the work of Christ and another person than even what that person may be doing for me in that moment, Paul says. What we'll see as we go further into this concept of Christian contentment is that this was a fruit of Paul being content in Christ. That he could receive Pardon me. He could, he could receive and be thankful for a gift that in his mind he truly did not need and therefore rejoice on a higher level. Again, his joy was not, good, I have been cared for finally. My needs are finally met. But his rejoicing was, look at what the Lord has worked through the hearts of the Philippians. Paul learned to overcome what is one of the great masters of the human heart, that simple word, Need. And he overcomes it with a Christ-centered contentment. And again, that contentment produces this kind of joy that rejoices greater than receiving some wonderful gift. This gift was a, was a, a sacrificial gift to the Philippians. And he could have very simply rejoiced in, wow, what a great gift. I love this gift. It's so wonderful. But rather, he rejoiced in what was going on behind it. So joy in Christ that Paul is experiencing here, and I think teaching us by example is a deeper, more serious joy, more, more observant of the gospel in what's going on around him. And this comes out of a heart of contentment. So looking at verses 11 and 12, Paul has an immovable satisfaction in God that supersedes his circumstances by the strength of Christ. Corrie Ten Boom, a Christian during the Nazi rule in Germany, known for the great help she was to hiding Jews for, from capture, said, you can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. Paul would have had ample time to learn this in his ministry, and particularly in his multiple imprisonments. While a truth such as this feels daunting and perhaps even unattainable as we live in such prosperity, even relative to where Paul was or the Christians were at the beginning of the life of the church, it may seem hard for us to grasp this concept of, of what kind of situation would I need to be in in order to learn that Christ is all I need. I'd have to be in a situation where Christ is all that I have. I think that this is true. I think this is how we gain true contentment, how we learn contentment when we understand Christ in this way, not simply as an additional benefit to the life I already live, but a reworking of it entirely based completely on him. Again, it may seem hard in prosperous circumstances that many of us enjoy today, but it is the path that is necessary for us to learn the kind of contentment that Paul is talking about here in this passage. And so in your outline, I gave you this definition of contentment. Again, it's an immovable satisfaction in God that supersedes circumstances by the strength of Christ. We see Paul begin to piece this out in verse 11 when he says, not that I am speaking of being in need. What's that, Paul? If there is a single simple verb that can relate the whole of human history. Need may just fit the bill for that. Every single human being has understood what it is to need something. 
Even from birth, babies understand their need, and so they cry out for milk. They cry out for comfort from their mothers. Consider even our three most basic needs of food, shelter, and clothing. Clothing. <laughs> shelter and clothing. Whew. Say that ten times fast. Then even on top of that, consider emotional needs, as we call them. To be loved and to love, to feel significant in some way, to sense a greater purpose than the dull routine we find ourselves in day after day. Or our need to have a platform for our thoughts to be heard when we have any idea, perhaps at all, perhaps we have no idea at all what we're actually talking about. Our need to be entertained after a long day at work or our need to treat ourselves to some exorbitant spoiling, be it food, vacation, cars, gadgets, or the like. Of course, these are not all legitimate needs as we consider them. But to many in the culture, there's not an actual difference between a perceived need and an actual need. What Paul is about to offer us in Christian contentment is a radical concept in our culture today and it's just as difficult for those of us even trying to follow Christ to comprehend. Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, a prisoner for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. If he had just kept his mouth shut, he wouldn't be there. He would be continuing the great and impressive work of being a Pharisee. Of course, from an eternal perspective, you could see how Paul made a better choice to follow Christ and to obey him and to let him lead him wherever he may go rather than to continue the path he was on apart from Christ. And yet what Paul has learned from Christ produced a far greater treasure than any self-centered mindset of worldliness could ever produce. He learned true and real contentment. Before we explore the incredible nature of this contentment, rather, focus on the preceding verb for a moment. Paul did not receive contentment that superseded circumstances. He didn't discover it. He didn't figure it out. And he didn't even achieve it. What is the verb? Learned. He learned contentment. Learning requires two things. A student and a teacher, right? Well, whom would, he, would have been a better uh, person to learn contentment from than Jesus Christ? The Prince of Peace himself. The one in whom his contentment, Paul's contentment, was truly found. This takes an immediate load off of the sermon for me. <laughs> contentment can, can not be learned by listening to preaching or to a Bible study, but contentment, though it can be seen in other Christians around us, can only be learned from relationship and continually following Jesus Christ. It is him in whom the strength to face all things resides, as verse 13 so famously says to us. This kind of learning is not the kind of learning that comes from a textbook. We're called to it and shown it in Scripture. The Holy Spirit illuminates our need for it in Christ, that he may receive the honor that he is due and in pursuing him, we reach a point in our experience that is abundantly clear that in him alone will I be content. Learn how to be content. Learn what it means to see that starting a sentence with I need as a Christian can only truly and fully be completed with Christ alone. Solus Christus. Christ alone for all of salvation and Christ alone for all of life. 
See, this verb that Paul uses of learned, when the structure comes together in the Greek, what he's talking about is that he reached a point after following Christ for however long where he realized what contentment was. Contentment, this word in the Greek, actually translates to something surprising. The literal definition is self-sufficient. And that word doesn't sound distinctly Christian on its own. Shouldn't I be dependent on Christ? Shouldn't I be saying that Christ is sufficient? So why is Paul taking this word content, which really means self-sufficient in the Greek, and describing himself with it, that he's acquired it? Well, this word was a favorite among Greek mystery religions. And in that context, Paul saying that he found the secret in verse 12 would involve a journey through various levels of attaining some attribute, self-sufficiency being among the chief desired, and ultimately reaching a plateau of perfection in that area. For a Greek to say that they have reached contentment would mean that they had found a way to overcome every obstacle in life through their own efforts. Paul, of course, will do away with this by his statement in verse 13 of chapter 4, that Christ is the one who strengthens him. But it is interesting that he chooses this particular word. Need, A.W. Tozer said, is a creature word. He writes this in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, where he addresses the attributes of God. Paul, being a creature and thus affected by such a word, has gained an entirely new experience with the same word. He no longer needs in the sense of need before he knew Christ. Before knowing Christ, our sense of need controls, drives, and leads our minds. Whether that need was actual or perceived. In Christ now, to some extent, we still allow need to rule our thoughts from time to time, don't we? We're subject to and crippled by the journey to satisfy need when we look away from Christ and act as though we are truly self-sufficient. In that mindset, we seek control, direction, and our own sovereignty over our circumstances. This, of course, is a fruitless effort. We need to, as Paul did, embrace contentment in Christ alone and trust him to satisfy needs as we work out the great commission to call others to him. To Paul, the words of Christ have been absolute reality in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 27. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about the body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? Answer that question for a second. Are you of more value than the birds of the air? Yes. <laughs> and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? This is a radical passage. Go back to this beginning part again. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink about the body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? All these things that you need, these basic needs, what do we need to do with them? Do what the birds do. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns. They don't store things up for another day, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. The birds, in a sense here, trust God. And we are anxious and we worry and we toil and we are discontent when we do not have what we think we need. 
Sounds a lot like what Paul wrote in Philippians. Be anxious for nothing. Pray about everything. Ponder the praiseworthy and excellent things of Christ. And the peace of God that Paul promises to us was to him the foundation of this contentment. What would be the opposite of contentment? It would have to be covetousness. We swim in a world saturated by covetousness, and it permeates our minds, and it poisons our perspective. Contentment is the means that we make war against this covetousness. I covet when I want what I do not have and often cannot have, ought not have. If I can identify covetousness in my heart, then I can attack it with the word of God in places like 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, which is a simple one to memorize. Not only because the number is the same, but because it's very short. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Say it one more time and then you'll actually have it memorized. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Where is that in the Bible? 1 Timothy 6 6. Easy. Oh, I didn't put a slide in between those. Okay. <laughs> I can attack this kind of covetousness in my mind, reminding myself of the truth that godliness with contentment is great gain. But I can also attack it with prayer, with prayers like, Lord, show me that all I have in Christ is all I need in life. We can also attack covetousness with fellowship, seeking accountability, seeking wisdom from other believers, and further encouragement to seek Christ above all other things. Covetousness does appear often for us when we want something that isn't necessarily a bad thing to want. Marriage, career, success, a family, these and many others can even become idols in our hearts if we allow them to. How do we fight the temptation for this? We seek the clear will of God for our lives. Passages like 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. Another short one, easy one to memorize. For this is the will of God your sanctification. When we have moments where we're recognizing the covetousness in our hearts for things that we do not have and ought not to have in some cases, we can look back to see clearly what God does want for us. And sanctification is that process of him growing us more into the image of Christ. Even in taking that one thing clearly communicated to us, that God wants me to be more like Christ, will transform our perspectives of our wants and our needs and give us a lens through which to see them more clearly. Whatever it is I'm asking God for, in the waiting, I act on what I know he is wanting for me and trusting that he is working out what is truly best for me, even when I do not understand. So Spurgeon said, when we cannot trace his finger we can still trust his heart. When I cannot see what God is doing, I can still trust who he is. Let's go to verse 12. What enemy is there against contentment? There are circumstances. Verse 12, Paul says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. D.A. Carson points out that this idea of contentment is not learned in one or the other when things are going well or when things are going poorly. Rather, we learn contentment by experiencing both of those things in life. And this is what Paul did. 
We may consider that the challenge would only lie in the negative when we are hungry or when we are brought low or when we are in need. But are there dangers in prosperity? Can we be, yes, there are. Can we be content when our need is staring us in the face? Can we be content when plenty calls us to indulge in more than what we need? See, the circumstances that change aren't really the bigger problem. The bigger problem is where our heart is in relationship to Christ. The goal of contentment then would be to overcome the snare of either type of situation by trusting in Christ alone, no matter which one we faced, knowing he is enough. So again, Paul says that he has learned the secret, grammatically saying that at one point in his following Christ, he discovered the reality of trusting him with everything. This contentment freed him to obedience and to joy. It's interesting that we work this backwards naturally. I will be content when I get as much as I can, but its end is like being adrift in the ocean drinking salt water. Do you know about drinking salt water? Sailors have always been told that in the event of shipwreck, Never drink salt water. As you drink it, your body will crave more of it, and the high salt content actually dehydrates you. The very thing you would look to, and that seems like would satisfy, only increases dissatisfaction and leads to self-destruction. So drinking salt water in the middle, middle of a shipwreck can lead to dying of dehydration in the ocean. The very thing you would look to that seems like it would satisfy increases dissatisfaction, leads to self-destruction. Beloved, be warned, lacking contentment reveals sin in our hearts that needs to be dealt with. And the mark of the true believer in that instance is to Romans 8.13 that thing. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Again, the sailor is adrift in the ocean, really, really thirsty, baking in the sun. He remembers that he was told, don't drink the salt water. It will only bring you more thirst and could eventually kill you. But he's so thirsty and the only thing around is salt water. We sin because we look for satisfaction in things outside of Christ. And in times of need, in times of hunger, in times of these negative things, when we are brought low, Christ comes to us and says, I am enough. If you will trust in me, don't look to the world, don't look to sin to satisfy, because it is only going to bring self-destruction. So by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body so you may live. This is not a call for us to be cavalier soldier Christians that think that we can take on the temptations of the world. Rather, this is a call for us to lean on the Holy Spirit, whom God has freely given to us, himself living inside of us so that we might fight against sin and have victory over it as we lean on him. He calls us to embrace the means of grace as we learn contentment from following Christ, to dive into the word of God, continually approaching the throne of grace in prayer, and not to neglect coming together with other believers in order to walk faithfully together. There are no lone wolf Christians. Oftentimes we cannot embrace the ministry that Christ is calling us to 
because we do not trust him to meet our needs. If I can prioritize my needs first, then I can supplement that with whatever Christ wants to call me to. The overwhelming problem with that is that Christ will be second to nothing. He demands to be first in your life, and he deserves to be first in your life. And then the context of need to trust him to provide what he has ordained as your daily bread, what he has ordained for it. Because remember, we, like the culture that we swim in, can mix up actual need and perceived need with no problem at all. But he is the one who calls us to pray and say, give us this day our daily bread. He doesn't say, ask for a loaf, a two loaves, a loaf and a half. He says, give us today what you have ordained for my needs. Think of the Israelites wandering in the desert for 40 years. How did God feed them? The manna from heaven, right? And were they allowed to store up manna for the next day? No. They were to take what they needed for that day and the next day to trust God for the next supply of it. To be content in Christ. And of course, that first time that the manna came, they probably were all thinking, go get some more baskets. I know we have enough for today, but go get some more baskets. Let's get the rest of this stuff. They had to learn contentment through obedience and trusting God. So what happens when we embrace discontentment or when we deny the contentment that Christ has for us? When we deny contentment or embrace discontentment, we deny all that Christ has taught us. We deny that his grace is sufficient for us in our weakness. We deny that he is an all-satisfying treasure. We deny that he is the Lamb of God, worthy of the reward of his sufferings. We deny his power to change our hearts. We deny that he is greater than the power of the world, the flesh, and Satan. We, in our minds, strip him of his due glory and say, Christ is not enough. The way we avoid this damnable action of taking away all the goodness and grandeur of Christ is to say, Lord, take anything from me that you will, so long as I have Christ. And this is how Paul learned contentment. When Christ is all you have, he is truly all you need. And there we can learn true contentment. Look at verse 13. While Philippians 4.13 can be found on bumper stickers, t-shirts, and the bulging muscles of UFC fighters, for Paul... It is actually a declaration of his utter weakness in himself. Here he turns the mystic understanding of contentment on its head. He is not self-sufficient. The strength the Greek mysterian sought could not be found by worldly and fleshly means, but through complete dependence on Christ alone. In this, Paul has shown Jesus to be glorious as his ultimate treasure and source of overcoming the world. So when Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, what are the all things? As you're learning to study your Bibles, this is probably going to be obvious to you. that This is not a blank check phrase. We must read it in the context of what Paul is talking about. He said earlier, I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound. Facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The all things refers directly to what has preceded it. I can face all of these things because Christ strengthens me to do so. And beloved, he will strengthen you when you walk with him. As scary or as impossible as the task 
he has for you may seem. If you go with him, you go with his strength. If you wander from his path, you separate yourself from his strength and have nothing to rely on but yourself. These all things that Paul faced for us may not and won't look exactly the same as what Paul faced. But the things that you're facing today, Christ does have the strength for you to overcome in every circumstance. Paul's giving us direction to explosive spiritual power to overcome all circumstances of life. The Christian life is not marked by comfort and prosperity at all times. Rather, it is marked by a commitment to contentment in Christ, no matter where we find ourselves today. Some of you are facing overwhelming odds, even in your near future. What can you lean on to face these circumstances? What can you do when no level of planning or preparedness can supply you with peace for what the Almighty God may allow to come your way? What do you have when the fallen world we live in threatens your home or your job or your family or your other securities? Your only hope is in the strength of the same Almighty God. Your faith that Jesus Christ was no ordinary rabbi and not just a good teacher or any other historical figure, but is the one true Son of God, will produce in you a longing to be with him, a reliance on him, a deep affection in him, and the scripture will prove true. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Or take this nugget from Psalm 28, verses 6 through 8. 